and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, I've got a really important question for you today. Okay. How would your life change if you made this song your morning alarm? Would it change? Would you become more dastardly? Would you become oh, more powerful? Aaron, if that were my alarm, I would wake up every morning and I would sit in bed. I would never snooze. I would never snooze. And I would think to myself, am I going to be a villain or am I going to be a hero today? Yeah, I think Succession, which, by the way, starts in three weeks. And this is not an ad. They would have to pay us to shut up about Succession. I can't wait! Succession is back in three weeks. I was thinking about it this morning because I was listening to the song, and I would hit snooze because that song bangs. <laughs> that song absolutely bangs. So I would hit snooze like 15 times, and it would maybe end up being uh, sort of a zero-sum game. But you know what? I can't wait for that show to get back. I love watching good things and bad things happening to every single character on that show. It's like, who are you rooting for? You're kind of rooting for everybody. It's like, I, I mean, who... It is, to me, the greatest of the greatest of the shows, and I can't wait for it to come back. The problem is going to be when they drop it one episode a week, and we're so frustrated that we can't get them all at once. I, You know what? A good episode of Succession is sort of like when I'm watching two teams play each other that I dislike. I dislike both of them. I just want to see some good football, you know? You know, I get it. I get it. And I can't. Have you seen the, the all the different posters that they have? The sort of yes. Easter egg? Isn't that? So intriguing. All we know is that Cousin Greg is always on the side of the line with Kendall. Oh. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? Probably nothing because they're fucking with us, but I'll take it for now. <laughs> This week, we are joined by Julissa Arce and Rebecca Nagel to tackle the following questions. What isn't Congress getting done now? How does missing white woman syndrome perpetuate the systemic reasons behind gendered violence? Are true crime social media sleuths helping or hurting things? And have you finished all of your preparations for Fat Bear Week? All this and more right now. Okay. A lot of news to get to, but the news is sort of news about how there isn't news, which is very frustrating. So this was supposed to be the week that Democrats landed the plane and passed Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda, but they didn't do that. So Alyssa, why didn't they? Well, Aaron, I mean, talking about Congress is so... Uh, boring, but I guess necessary. So here, in a nutshell, uh, as of recording today, um, Speaker Pelosi has said that the original deal was that the Build Back Better bill would be voted on in tandem with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, except they don't have enough votes currently for the Build Back Better bill in the Senate because of two of our non-faves, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And the issue for people who aren't super familiar with Congress, well, there are many issues, but one that people aren't, I think people aren't talking about enough is that normally you'll have holdouts, but they're kind of holding out for the same 
reasons, but we don't know, we don't know macro why Mansion and Cinema are fully holding out, but we know that they have differences of opinion within the bill. So it might be easier to come to consensus if Mansion and Cinema's problems were the same problems, but they're not because Cinema is for the climate change uh, provisions in the bill. Um, she is not for some of the healthcare provisions in the bill, which would take money away from big pharma. So, okay. And Manchin is not for the climate change because he says people are already doing better. Why are we going to pay them to do better? Why would we pay companies to reduce emissions and use more clean energy when they're already doing it? And uh, so that's where we are. And there's been no public statement, really, you know, as is with all congressional reporting. These are snippets we get from people who are like on the Hill shouting questions at people as they walk by. But there hasn't been a statement as to what number Mansion or Cinema could agree on. If not 3.5, could they do three? Could they do 2.5? Is this really just an episode of fucking House Hunters where it's going to be like a 1.995 because that's not two? And Mansion has said in some instances that he couldn't go above two. So, Aaron, it is congressional shit soup. <sighs> yeah, you know— just kind of zooming out a little bit because I I think part of what the political media does when it comes to stuff like that, like this, is make us feel like this feeling and this frustration is forever because this is like their time to be A1 above the fold in the news. And uh, I don't blame political reporters for wanting to preserve their A1 above the fold status by heightening the drama. But I do want to say as a person who has I think, tried to stay in touch with being a normal person that has a soul and feelings. Tried. Medium degree of success. Uh, this is the reason that people hate following politics. Um, because right now, what's happening is Washington dumb fuckery. And what's at stake is things that people need in order to participate in the workforce. That's what the Build Back Better plan was supposed to be. So, mm -hmm. the, you know, when Joe Biden was setting out his agenda, and you and I were both impressed with this. We he, were so impressed. He just he was a person who viewed infrastructure holistically. He treated roads and bridges the same as affordable daycare and family leave would be because they are the same. They enable people to participate economically. And, uh, you know, our genius ass Congress decided to split that agenda into two bills because in essence, segregating them by gender. So like the man bill is the one that has like the roads and the bridges and the hard hats and the, you know, you know, building. And then the other part of the bill contains provisions like paid family leave, uh, free community college, um, affordable uh, child care, Medicare covering dental and vision. And like, it's, it's stuff that is quote unquote soft infrastructure, but that primarily impacts women. And now we're in a position where it looks like what the moderates would be comfortable with is just the part of the infrastructure agenda that benefits primarily men getting through. Like, 
I don't care how fucking smooth the road is. If it costs more than my mortgage to send two children to daycare, I'm not going to work. You know what I mean? Well, it's like what Bernie Sanders has said. We're going to, if this, if only the hard infrastructure bill passes, we are building bridges for people to live beneath. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where we are. And so much of the Build Back Better bill is also meant to address the fact that so many women were ejected from the workforce during COVID because childcare didn't exist and people had to stay at home and take care of their kids. And so it's like, Erin, it's very upsetting. And people, and the, the thing about it too, I think that's frustrating about the coverage is, like you said, everybody should have their rights to the A1 above the fold. But this is like real life shit. When reporters talk about other things like the debt ceiling and funding, I mean, those seem so abstract that people's eyes glaze over. But this is literally putting food on the table, stopping forest fires, figuring out how to deal with droughts, how to get how to get old people the ability to hear and not have to go bankrupt for a hearing aid. It's just, it's fucked up, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super fucked up. And I, I just... I don't want to get too caught up on the day-to-day of this because watching the sausage get made is gross, Uh, especially in the system of democracy that we've decided is the greatest in the world, but actually was designed by a bunch of like 22-year-old guys in 1776 who didn't want to pay their taxes. Um, You know, there are a lot of flaws in the system and they're all being exposed right now. Um, I think that the thing that is really a turnoff to an average voter is the fact that, again, like we've talked about, these people are so isolated. Our elected officials are so isolated from the effects of these bills. Like what difference does it make to Kirsten Cinema if, you know, somebody uh, can now afford to go to community college for free? What difference does it make to her? Like there was just a there was just a pretty damning piece that came out this week where Chris, did you see this where she was like, what? "Voters eat that shit up." What? Oh my god! This woman drives me bananas. She essentially is quoted in a story saying of her story of childhood poverty that voters eat that shit up, like that all of it is just sort of like it it. Theater. People really like hearing about what a hard time she had. But, you know, I think if she had a hard time, maybe she should pass some legislation that would support other people who are going through the same things that she went through. But that's just, I'm not a politician, so I don't know. Wow. Didn't hear that, Aaron. Didn't hear that. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, it's, it's not good at all. I also, I want to jump really quickly. You know, we're talking about like this gridlock frustration. And um, I want to remind people that it, doesn't mean that participation is bad. It doesn't mean that voting is bad. This is just a particularly annoying moment in an annoying week. And right now, I think is an okay time to just be like, I need to take a break from watching cable news. Uh, I'm going to read the Washington Post, you know, summary of what happened at the end of the day, but I'm going to go about my life and not spend my time being like, worried about these negotiations that I have absolutely zero impact on. Is that controversial? I don't know. I don't think it's controversial. I think it's right. But then when when the rubber hits the road and people take their votes, we have to see how everybody voted so that when it is time to vote again, people are held accountable for the votes that they make in Congress. 
Yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't seem like many of these people will. I think cinema is up for re-election in 2024. That woman is going to get the shit primaried out of her. But by that point, how many favors will she have done to pharmaceutical companies? And how many favors would she have done to people who are moneyed interests who will be happy to provide her a cushy corporate job when she gets out of the Senate? You know, it's it's sort of like no matter what, they win. And it is really annoying. Um, I do have a uh, sort of... <laughs> We, we were talking about this this morning. I have a sort of like fun clusterfuck story. Oh, do um, tell. I I know this one. Please regale us. Yes. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times we, uh, because of the death of local media and because of the glamour of national media, we lose out on hearing about the true wackiness that happens at the state level. Unless it t- takes place in like a big state like C- California, where uh, Gavin Newsom just crushed a recall effort or in New York where Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned going down swinging and was replaced by a woman who appears to be extremely competent. So congratulations on that. Um, But we miss out on states that don't have media centers that maybe don't have more than a few members of Congress because they're very sparsely populated, but wackiness does happen. So today I want to talk about South Dakota. South Dakota, the wackier Dakota, by leaps and bounds. <laughs> right? Totally. Like North Dakota, I was I drove through it this summer, and North Dakota was lovely. Fargo is a cute town. I recall you saying it. You had a lot of a lot of charming things to say about uh the good Dakota. I like the good North Dakota. I consider the good Dakota. The bad Dakota is very entertaining. So here's what's happening in the bad Dakota. Governor Christy Nome, who is sort of a pick-me governor. You know what a pick-me is? No, what's that? A pick-me is in like online dating parlance, uh, a person who tries too hard to impress people and in trying to impress people sort of debases themselves. Oh, got it. A a pick-me move for like a woman who dates men would be like, I'm not like the other girls. Like, that's a pick-me move. Got it. A a pick-me move for a Republican governor would be like, I am taking a private donation from a crazy millionaire in a different state to send (laughs) the National Guard to a border that my state is a thousand miles (laughs) away from. That's like a pick-me move, right? Okay, so Governor Christy Nome, the pick-me of South Dakota, um, apparently uh, arranged for her daughter, who failed a state real estate appraiser test, to have a personal meeting with the employee who is in charge of approving state real estate appraiser licenses, um, which is a pretty clear abuse of power. Like her, her adult child, I love that we're resurrecting that Trump era phrase, adult child. Christy Nome's adult child, Cassidy with a K, um, sorry. Stop. <laughs> that was a very relevant detail. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cassidy with a K is the most important detail of this story. Cassidy with a K failed to receive a real estate appraiser's license in the state of South Dakota. Her mother, Christy with a K, arranged for there to be a meeting, which seems to be an abuse of power. Eventually, the employee that her daughter met with was fired. The daughter got her appraiser's license somehow. And here is the cherry on top of that Sunday of chaos. (laughs) Right now, the attorney general of South Dakota has announced that he's looking into it. You might remember the attorney general of South Dakota from the time he ran over and killed a man with his car. (laughs) 
Not that that's the funny part. It's not the chaos is what's funny. The chaos not, is not what's funny. The fact that he got off with, I think, a misdemeanor charge for killing a man with his car uh, when he was suspected to be texting. So that's what's going on in South Dakota. Um, and Christy Nome complained on Twitter that it's not okay for people to go after her quote unquote kids. I want to remind everybody that Cassidy with a K is an adult. And Cassidy with a K is an adult who directly benefited from her mother intervening in a licensing process. She needed help from her ma. <laughs> Look, I, I totally understand parents wanting to step in and do what they can for their children. But that's the sort of thing that conservatives would make fun of liberal parents for doing. That's like helicopter Without parenting. question. It's, that is, it's snowflakey. It's helicoptery. It's all of the things. It is uh it is showing up to your daughter's first day of college classes type behavior. It is literally like calling up the person who interviewed her for a job to make sure that she did a good job. Like it is that is deeply embarrassing. That is well, I'm glad that Cassidy with a K can now thrive in the real estate industry. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how it is in South Dakota. I think there's some some beautiful uh, beautiful land in South Dakota, but most of that land, I believe, rightfully belongs to tribes and should probably go back to them. So uh, Cassidy with a K might have chosen a sinking industry, but she doesn't seem like the smartest uh, <laughs> political scion. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, do we have any toast and roast today or are we going to save our sort of like toasty thing for Sanity Corner? No, we got to save our toasty thing for Sanity Corner. Okay. Because well, it's so good. It's so good. Okay, well, stick around. We're going to take a quick break, but then when we come back, we are going to talk about missing white woman syndrome. Welcome back. Time to talk about the big topic at hand. Alyssa, I want to start with a sort of light question to get us into this heavy topic. Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, and I guess currently, did you ever want to be a detective? Girl, I am a detective. <laughs> I'm like Nancy Drew meets Ramona Quimby every day and I'm 45. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I love, I mean, solving mysteries is, I mean, it's an exciting thing to try to do. Yeah, you know what? I think I wanted to be a detective too, but then because I watched Ghost Rider religiously when I was a kid, the PBS show oh, about yeah, yeah, the yeah. joy of writing. Uh, and actually, now one of our hysteria co hosts' sister was one of the cast members of the original. Really? Yeah, Tien. Oh, I did not know. Tien's sister played Tina on Ghost Rider. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Anyway, I love that show because I wanted to live in a world where I could go around solving mysteries, but also be insulated from the real danger that solving actual mysteries can bring, uh, which is a serious threat of bodily harm, especially if you're a child going around trying to, like, figure out crimes. It's like low-key murder, she wrote. 
Yeah, it is. Totally low-key murder, she wrote. But, you know, I feel like a lot of people kind of want to be sleuths, want to help out. Um, sometimes that manifests in a way that is actually helpful. Sometimes that manifests in a way that is sort of a reflection of a bunch of social shortcomings. And we're going to talk about the ins and outs of how that manifests today. Uh, we're going to talk about the Gabby Petito disappearance and death. And we're going to talk about why it has so dominated the national conversation. So I want to bring in the rest of the panel. I'm so excited for this conversation today, guys. First, she is an author and activist, and nobody suffers fools less gladly than she does. Jaleesa Arce. Hi. <laughs> I'm glad to be here Did for this conversation. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here. Did you ever want to grow up to be a detective? Uh Yes, and I feel like uh, every guy I ever met probably knows what a good detective <laughs> I am. <laughs> Give me his name. I will find out. <laughs> I mean, we're all sort of uh, DIY PIs in the age of social media. Exactly. Especially if you're like a woman who has female friends who date shady men and you're like I'm going to figure that I'm going to figure out what's going on here it's it's great good skill to have um and next when this story that we're going to talk about today started percolating in the news my first thought is we have to get this person on the show to talk about this. Um, I'm delighted to have Rebecca Nagel today. Most of you know her from the podcast This Land. Some of you know her from her journalism work. She is a member of Cherokee Nation and a longtime advocate to address violence facing Native women. Rebecca, I want to start with you. I'm going to start with a joke question and then ask you a real question. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. <laughs> First, uh, do we think it's possible that John Mulaney had something to do with this? Because... <laughs> Before the Gabby Petito case, my social media feeds were like 50% home sleuthing about John Mulaney's divorce. And then when the Gabby Petito case came up, all of a sudden it was all Gabby Petito and no John Mulaney. I'm just asking questions. For legal purposes, I don't think John Mulaney killed Gabby Petito. Um, <laughs> he doesn't seem, doesn't seem like he'd be comfortable outdoors. Okay. On a serious note, though, over the last several weeks, for better or for worse, the case of Gabby Petito's disappearance and death— following the, you know, suspicious disappearance of her boyfriend has dominated certain corners of the media space and the social media space, even as other women go missing every day uh, with little, if any, attention. So what accounts for this? Is it as simple as missing white woman syndrome or is there more at play here? I I, th I think that that's what it is. You know, we have a... Um true crime media industrial complex that is really fixated on the murder and death and disappearance of certain types of people. Um, you know, and so um, Gabby Petito, while what's happened to her is absolutely tragic, um, fits that mold. And so her case got this disproportionate reaction that most missing and murdered people don't see, you know, and that's both within the media response, the public outcry, and then that also equaled real police resources, you know, um, in response to her disappearance that... Um, you know, particularly in my community, when Native people go missing, um, we don't see that kind of response. But it also happens in other communities, you know, when members of the LGBTQ community, particularly trans women, experience violence, when other communities of color experience violence, um, there's not the same kind of public 
outcry. And I think that that can sound like um, we're in competition with each other, you know, that the Gabby Petitos of the world should get less recognition. But I don't think that the coverage of her case helps prevent another young white woman from being potentially murdered by her boyfriend. You know, we're not learning about the warning signs of escalating domestic violence and relationship violence. We're not learning um, how patterns of domestic violence escalate to violence like murder. We're not learning any of that stuff. We're learning kind of um, the murder mystery version of it. (laughs) And I think that that's Mm -hmm. what a lot of the kind of true crime industrial complex is built around, is built around entertainment. It's not... Um, built around um, raising awareness about um, the underlying cultural norms and structures and institutions that create this type of violence. Mm-hmm. Julissa, um, what do you think coverage would look like if it is if it did actually address the causes of violence against people like Gabby Petito and the you know dozens to hundreds of unnamed women that we never learn about? Yeah, you know, I I was thinking about how in the United States, there aren't really any statistics for femicide. So so uh, violence uh, and crimes that are committed against women because they are women, right? And we don't have any real statistics about that. Um, In other countries, statistics specifically around femicide exist. And here we don't have that. So I think part of the problem is that we don't really understand the magnitude of the problem. Because when a woman dies, we, we can never truly identify it as this was um, a, a, um, a homicide committed by her partner. Uh, it was a crime because she is a woman. So, so I think the first step is that we need to have those better statistics. Um, I was also, when I was reading through the, the various statistics, it was really interesting to me that um, Hispanic women, quote unquote, Hispanic women were lumped in with white women. So there wasn't even a separate um, a separate statistic for Latina women. And, and as a Latina, I would love to know what is the magnitude of the problem and what is the magnitude of the problem in my own community. So I think part of that um, responsibility uh, doesn't necessarily lie with the media, but I do think that the media has a responsibility to not be lazy and to dig more into um, some of the problems. And I do think we're missing a really great opportunity that when, whether it's a white woman or a black woman or a Latina woman or an indigenous woman, when those tragedies happen, that we do take the opportunity to educate uh, the public about those signs that um, that Rebecca was talking about. I'll share something personal here, which is that um, I was in a really abusive relationship in the past. And I remember I used to watch Law & Order um, special victims unit, like religiously. And in one of the episodes, uh, in one of the episodes, they said that when a man chokes a woman violently, right? Not in like any kinky kind of way. Um, that that's like, that's, that's the next step. The next thing, the next step is murder. Right. And I don't know whether that's actually true or not because it, because I watched it on a television show, but let me tell you that when that happened to me, when he choked me, that was like, okay, what the fuck am I doing? I need to get out of this situation, right? And so, um, and so, I think that if we if we did talk about those things, um, then maybe it would help to prevent not just um, you know white women, but like every woman from um, from 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 being victims of these types of really vicious crimes. Um, 
So uh, I think there's a lot that we as a society and as 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 consumers of media need need to do um, because if the media, like the national media, is not talking about it, um, then we can use social media for good and we can share other stories. We can share these resources. So, you know, when people are sharing um, uh, this particular case, why don't we add a slide about the warning signs? Why don't we Mm -hmm. uh, add a slide about resources that women can tap into uh, to get out of these situations and to know those warning signs? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm really sorry that happened to you, Julissa. Thank you. Um, and it really, it's such a good point that bystander intervention is taught as a thing that we don't do until after somebody dies. Like bystander intervention is like true crime sleuths, like looking for clues about where the van was, not, you know, trying to identify this is wrong. And as somebody witnessing behavior of uh, a violent nature from a man to a romantic partner that's a woman, like, what can I do? You know, we don't really have very much of that training. Alyssa, I was texting with you about this yesterday. I went down a deep Gabby Petito rabbit hole, not because I need to know more about the case, but I just wanted to see how people were talking about the case. And so I listened to a bunch of Nancy Grace, which was uh, crazy. Uh, it it was like fan fiction about her autopsy from a bunch of people who hadn't examined her body. And then I ended up in uh, I ended up finding a video of people gathering outside mm-hmm. of Gabby Petito's boyfriend Brian Laundrie's parents' house. Yeah, I watched that too. Bull, yeah, with bullhorns yelling about uh, them being aiding and abetting a murder. And we, we don't really know what if anything they did we just see that now that now they're being harassed and they might have had something to do with it but we don't we don't know you know and i was watching this and i thought it sort of reminds me of what we see you know at town hall meetings and sort of reminds me of what we see at like school board meetings or people really distrusting institutions and taking it upon themselves to like enact justice do you think that this is ultimately helpful to anybody? I mean, I don't, I mean, so there are some interesting things about this case that are, and I don't mean voyeuristically, I'm interesting, but, you know, some of the things that I have taken away from some of the reporting is that the things we've been talking about more and more over the past 10, 15 years are kind of breaking through. You know, people did try to intervene. Like so much of what is known, which I think is why some of it, the the white missing woman aside, um, is that in the middle of, you know, Wyoming, people heard her being yelled at. They saw him mistreating her. They called the police. You know, it's, it's, it is a little bit, I mean, I found that kind of heartening um, that at least some people were like, see something, say something, I know what's happening is not right. But I think that people want justice, right? I think like over the past, let's say since just the beginning of, of COVID, which also, you know, uh, coincides with with four years of Trump, people just want to see bad people fucking put away. And in their mind, if they're out there with a bullhorn, I think they think they're 
helping or they're going to crack the case or they're going to drive them to the brink where they confess and they come outside and they're like, I don't want you yelling at me with a bullhorn anymore. I'll tell you where he is, which is like, not to be junior Nancy Grace here, but he ain't in the Everglades, all right? He's in a non-extradition country, in my opinion. Um, But uh, I just think that people, because of the true crime industrial complex, as Rebecca said. It's like everybody sees some level of romance in solving a crime. Like everybody wants to feel like a hero. Everybody wants to feel like a good Samaritan. Even if you're a terrible person, you kind of want to feel like you did something good. And so I feel like the people standing out with the bullhorns are both, they're like a melange of all these things. It's like they think they're going to drive the parents out. They think that somehow by doing this, they're going to help solve the case. And, you know, I think that's kind of what it comes down to. I mean, the fact that people were leaving a shrine to Gabby at the parents' house, at his, at, at the fiancé's house. Yeah. I do think that sometimes it does take one person really caring uh, to make a difference. And what I, so I, I've been listening to this podcast called um, In Your Own Backyard. I don't know if you guys have, have heard about it, but it's, it's basically, it was basically revisiting the disappearance of Kristen Smart, who disappeared like 20 years ago from um, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And, um, and I mean, the really frustrating about part about listening to this podcast is just how long it even took for police to take it seriously, how long it took them to to really believe that this person was missing and not just like basically slut shaming her saying, you know, she was at a party. She's probably over at some boy's house this weekend. Um, and so by the time that 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 the police really paid attention, it was a little too late and it's been 20 years. Right. And and from the beginning, there's been sort of like a prime suspect, um, but never enough evidence to like bring him and 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 convict him or to even like arrest him. Um, and 20 years later, this guy did this podcast and spent a lot of time and resources investigating the case. And um, because of social media, because of cell phones now, the family that was involved with the disappearance of Kristen Smart, and they have been arrested now, um, they were talking about it on their on their phones. And so police were able to like get a hold of these conversations on their phones. And now 20 years later, I think finally there'll be some there will be some justice for Kristen Smart. So I do think that sometimes it's helpful. Um and it takes like one person not forgetting that this that this injustice happened. Um but obviously, you know, he didn't he didn't just like go scream at somebody's parents' house. Like he was very methodical in how he did it and spent a lot of time and resources. And in that case, it was really helpful. And I'm glad someone did it because how is it possible that for 20 years, there was no justice for this woman? Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, one thing that I have uh, seen is, you know, we have people who are kind of like Julissa mentioned, like dogged pursuers of justice through appropriate channels. But we also have this real um, prevalence of sort of uh, detective LARPing that happens on social media. And, you know, I was thinking about missing white woman syndrome and, you know, all the attention paid to this case. And then I was thinking if that amount of attention and if that sort of like detective LARPing were aimed at the case of like a missing Native woman from Wyoming, would that actually help? Like what is the ideal... uh, what is the ideal amount of attention given to cases that uh, where women go missing and uh, 
the police aren't necessarily able to find what's going on? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, um, oftentimes those people um, in for the cases of missing and murdered indigenous women who are trying to get answers, who are organizing their own search parties, who are raising funds for search parties are family members and community members. And I think that that's another layer of the trauma is that after losing a family member, it's on that family to search for them (laughs) Um, because there's just Mm -hmm. not the same level of um, police response. And so um, there was a really, really good study um, by the Urban Indian Health Institute that they uh, put out a few years ago that they did specifically on missing and murdered Indigenous women in urban areas, um, and they fa- they looked at about uh, over 500 cases and really just kind of logged what happened with those cases. And over 95% of those cases had no media coverage at all. And of the ones that did, um, a third of the coverage referenced drugs or alcohol. Uh, A third of the coverage referenced the victim's criminal history and a third of the coverage that involved a victim that was transgendered, misgendered um, the victim. And so that's the kind of coverage that missing and murdered indigenous people are getting. Um, And, and, and it, the same thing is mirrored in the government response. So, um, in 2016, um, 5,712 um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, were counted by the Urban Indian Health in- Institute, and then they compared that to the Department of Justice National Database, and only 116 of those cases had been logged nationally. And so, and and you can see the same thing in Wyoming, you know, um, where Gabby Petito's body was found um, in the past decade, um, 710. Um, indigenous people have gone missing and those indigenous people are way are twice as likely than white folks in the state to be missing more than 30 days. Um, And so, you know, it's at every layer where there's the amount of attention and public outcry that um, the media gives. And then there's also the police response, you know, and and I would say that, like, we have our famous cases that as a community, as Native people, we're all aware of, you know, um, whether it's like Olivia Lone Bear or um, Savannah Greywind, like that Native people are all talking about. But you you don't see the same kind of coverage or the same kind of attention in non-Native media. Um, and so, you know, and it's, and it's mirrored in the police response where, you know, because the police are like, well, you know, that person, because of X, Y, Z reason, she probably just went missing, you know, she probably just ran away or she probably just went and did this. They're not even considering that a crime may have occurred. And so then it's on family members and community members for them to try and take it seriously. And so, Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, there's a lot that needs to change, um, structurally. And I, and I think that's too, like one of the things that's frustrating about the way the media functions, like we have this kind of media cycle where we're going to spend all of this energy on one case 
And there's not the same amount of attention and depth and breadth of coverage of just the crisis of violence in general. <laughs> and so we're not we're not covering it in a way um, where people can really understand the problem. Um, we're just getting into the details of this one very specific case, which just, you know, that family deserves answers. It deserves to be solved. Like all of these cases deserves answers and deserve to be solved. But if we're going to fixate our public attention on something, I wish it could be the systemic issues that lead to this type of violence. Mm-hmm. And also, it seems like there's a problem with policing. Like yes. that we kind of we have like a goldfish brain about the fact that police drop the ball a lot on these cases. And a lot of the reason that they drop the ball is because they can. They have a constitutionally protected right to not do anything. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, the Supreme Court case, Gonzalez versus the town of Castle Rock, um, which Rebecca is nodding because I'm sure she's uh, familiar with, basically found that a woman, Jessica Gonzalez, who had a restraining order against her husband, uh, who was abusive to her, uh, requested protection from the police. The police did not respond. Her estranged husband showed up at the police station with his gun drawn. Uh, The police killed him. And then in his car, they found all three of her children murdered. The police did not respond to her contacting them and saying, this guy is violating my restraining order, ended up with her three children dead and her estranged husband. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled that uh, Gonzalez had no constitutionally protected property interest in the enforcement of the restraining order. So in other words, the cops don't have to protect anybody. Um, And that was a domestic violence case. And you know, I, I think that every time we're like, wow, you know, the police, you know, the police go to the police. It's like, yeah, but the police don't always do what they're supposed to do. Um, and Julissa, you mentioned femicide. I know that uh, we're coming up uh, on an anniversary. It's the day that this show airs is uh, Vanessa Guillen's 22nd birthday. And you emailed uh, about wanting to talk about this case. I wonder what the Vanessa Guillen case brings to mind in the context of this Gabby Petito conversation that we're currently having. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things. So for those that, and I can bet you anything that some of our listeners have probably never heard of the case of Vanessa Guillen. Vanessa Guillen was a 20 year old um, um, private uh, soldier who disappeared from Fort Hood. Um, She disappeared from a military base. I cannot stress that enough. She was on the military base one moment, the next she was disappeared. And again, the police response, the and in this case, it was a military police response, was incredibly inadequate. Um, no one really paid attention to this. Uh, Rebecca talked about sort of the onus being on the family, and that's exactly what happened in this case. The only reason that this case was getting any attention early on was because the family was at Furhood uh, protesting, marching. Uh, it became sort of um, uh, within, I think, Latino circles uh, on social media. We all knew about it, but nobody was talking about it on the national stage. Um, and her remains were ultimately found um, in, in, in on June 30th. Uh, so she, she disappeared on April 22nd. Her remains were found on June 30th. 
not very far away from the military base. And it took months for her body to be found. It took weeks and weeks and weeks for police to pay any attention to this. And, um, you know, I really want to uplift her, her, her story because September 30th would have been her 22nd birthday. She was incredibly young. No one deserves to, to, she, she was dismembered. Um, and, and it, and it pains me so much that so little attention was given to her case. And, 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 you know, when I think about the type of, of, of quote unquote victim that she was, she was a beautiful young woman, a soldier, right? We talk about sort of like giving to the country and, and caring for veterans. And the reason I brought that up is because, you know, we have a real opportunity with the Vanessa Guillen um, case create some systemic change for other women um, and other people who are victims of sexual harassment um, in the military. Um, and, and so right now through Congress, the I am Vanessa Guillen case, it's making its way through Congress. There is bipartisan support for this bill that would um, take the investigations of this types of case outside of the military command, because that's one of the big, that, that was one of the big problems in this case is that everybody investigating it was sort of part of the problem, right? Um, ultimately, there were like 14 different people who were um, uh, fired from the military um, as a result of their mishandling of the case. And so we have a real opportunity so that Vanessa Guillen didn't die in vain, so that her family not only gets justice for their own daughter, but for, for other potential victims within the military. I mean, in 2019, the Pentagon reported that 20,500 service members experienced sexual assault in the military. Um, and in Fort Hood, especially, there have been reports, like rampant reports of, of abuse at that particular um, uh, military base. And so I, as we're talking about not just talking about these cases because they're salacious, but actually doing something about it, I really urge and encourage all of our listeners to call their congressperson on the day of Vanessa Guillen's birthday and tell them that they need to pass the I am Vanessa Guillen Act. Um, that's what we need. We need action and we need systemic change. And Julissa, the Senate uh, counterpart to that bill is the Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act of 2021. And Senator Gillibrand, who's been on our show a bunch of times, is the lead sponsor of that bill. And it seems like something pretty insane that it hasn't been passed yet. This seems like some low-hanging fruit that the Senate and the Congress could just fucking get right. I mean, I hate, absolutely hate this guy, but like literally even Ted Cruz has said he supports this bill. So what's happening? <laughs> Let's get this thing passed. Yeah. Um, Alyssa, that kind of brings up uh, the Violence Against Women Act, which is, I believe, I think up to be reinstated or renewed. Do you think that the Violence Against Women Act has helped the problems that are at the root of uh, femicide, of women going missing, of women? Like, and, and, you know, what's at stake if that's it's not renewed? So VAWA was funded in the House, but is three years past due in the Senate. And I think it's been funded. Like, it's been funded through, like, weird ways that Congress, like, continues. It is, but it hasn't. But the Senate hasn't voted on it in three authorizations, which is part of the problem. Yeah. So it's like, like, those new measures, like, because there's, like, and the controversy is always that, like, 
there are better protections for vulnerable people. And Republicans hate that because they don't like gay people and immigrants <laughs> and tribal <Right>. sovereignty. <laughs> well, and didn't Deb, Secretary Deb, sort of go around it by creating the missing and murdered unit at the se- at the Department of Interior? Yeah, so that was like, that's not funded by VAWA. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's not that. And there was. Yeah. And so that was the the Congress did pass the Not Invisible Act. And so that commission that is being created now is a result of that act. And so legislatively, what happened with the measures that are in VAWA is like kind of weird because there were like all of these bills in Congress kind of happening at the same time. Right. And they all got incorporated in VAWA. And then like when VAWA wasn't getting passed, some of them were able to pass on their own. Yeah. And so I think that that's, mm-hmm. yeah. So that commission is a result of the Non-Invisible Act, which she actually sponsored when she was in Congress. It's kind of cool. Secretary Deb. Um, I know, she's great. God, what a great lady. <laughs> I mean, and like, you know, look to your left, look to your right. We're all women here. There's a lot of us. There's a lot of women in this country where half of the voting population and there are are people also, you know, in smaller numbers that are non-binary or like have a different gender identity, but they're just they're not men. And they often also tend to be the victims of violence that is gendered. And like, I just I don't understand how the needs of so many people can be ignored for so long. Because I think regardless of the fact that the media got a little over its skis with its coverage of the Gabby Petito case, and they will get over their skis with the coverage of the next pretty white girl who goes missing. The issues at the root of it that we've all kind of been touching on are issues that are at the root of a lot of women's disappearances. And I just, Rebecca, I would love to hear what your vision is for, you know, how how can we talk about this in our peer groups? Um, you know, if there's a case that's fascinating, how do we broaden the conversation to be about things that are bigger than just a quote-unquote influencer in a van? Yeah, yeah. Um, first, I just wanted to mention there are a couple really important things for um, Native women in the current bill for VAWA. So um, one of the reasons that violence against Native women is so high and and children and men and non-binary and our two-spirit relatives um, is so high is because um, tribes don't have criminal jurisdiction over non-Native people who commit crimes on our reservation. So if you wanted mm-hmm. to come onto my reservation and commit murder or steal a car or steal a pack of gum from the grocery store, Um, my tribal court system couldn't prosecute you for that crime. Um, And that has led to a utter crisis of violence in um, Indian country. And the federal government has jurisdiction. U.S. attorneys have a really high rate of not um, prosecuting those cases. So basically, abusers have learned that reservations are this place where they have refuge and mm-hmm. basically um, can do these crimes with impunity. And so in the 2013 reauthorization, um, tribes' jurisdiction over domestic violence and dating violence was restored by that act in this very narrow way. Um, so like literally a tribe could take somebody who was abusing their partner and they're also abusing a child and not they can now prosecute that person for domestic violence but not child abuse or say when that case finally went to trial they were intimidating the person they abused 
the tribe can't prosecute them for witness intimidation, but they can prosecute them for domestic abuse. So the new bill with um, VAWA uh, allows tribes to prosecute co-concurrent crimes that happen with domestic violence and also um, sexual assault and um, sex trafficking, which is really, really important. Um, Our tribes also don't get the same kind of like funding streams that local cities and counties have. So even just our ability to um, prosecute people is limited by that, especially, um, with smaller tribes. And so, um, some, that kind of funding streams and these big, big, big congressional bills for tribes to be included in that is also really important. Um, and then I think, you know, like in changing the conversation, um, I think that we have to have a real, I think we just have to fundamentally change how we talk about rape and abuse in this country. And I think that the way the Gabby Petito case has been covered really highlights that. Whereas like we think of rape and abuse as something that is committed by bad individuals and that it's like this interpersonal problem, right? And so like the problem isn't our society or our culture or our laws. It's Gabby Petito's fiance. Like he's this bad guy. And I think that that's honestly part of the fixation on these high profile cases because they tell a story where we can we can focus on the boyfriend or we can focus on the fiance and we don't have to focus on the bigger systemic issues. And really rape and abuse aren't, aren't things that happen in a vacuum and aren't things that happen by a bad set of individuals, but we have a society that creates situations where people are vulnerable and where people are vulnerable, you see really, really, really high rates of violence. So like the military, you know, where the route for survivors for justice is kept within the chain of command. You know, you think about churches, you think about universities um, and across the board, any, Mm -hmm. any group of people in the United States who are more vulnerable are more likely to experience rape. Any group, any group, people with disabilities, trans people, LGBTQ people, children, children are more likely to experience rape than adults because they have less rights in our country. And so if we really want to solve this problem, it's not about arresting the person who murdered Gabby Petito. (laughs) You know, it's about making sure that every person has equal access to justice, because as long as that is unequal, um, there are people who will take advantage of that. And I and I think that the media cycle around this idea that justice is getting one person is a way for us to actually avoid the harder conversation. Mm-hmm. That is a great thought to end this discussion on. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with us. Julissa, thanks for being with us. Alyssa, everybody stick around because we're going to take a break, take a breath, and when we come back, Sanity Corner. And welcome back. We are almost through with this episode, but not quite all the way through with the episode. We have a little bit of housekeeping, and then we're going to do Sanity Corner, and then we're going to send you on your merry way. First, housekeeping. September is National Voter Registration Month, and Vote Save America is working to raise $1.5 million through our No Years Off Fund. Alyssa, when you hear No Years Off, what do you think? I'm tired, girl. 
<laughs> I'm tired too. I'm tired, but I do want to say before we recorded today, I did update my voter registration. Oh yeah, you know what? It's it's pretty easy in a lot of places. In the places where it's less easy, you know, it's worth the time to devote to it and to help people who maybe need a little bit of help. Yep. Um, if you donate to the uh, Vote Save America Fund, donations will go to help voter registration efforts in places where reaching new voters will help make the difference in our ability to win next year and beyond. Places like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and my home state of Wisconsin. And my alma mater. We always forget I'm uh, a Badger, too. That's true. You you are you spent some precious time in Wisconsin, and I'm a Pennsylvanian by marriage. Me, too. And I got married in, in the state of Arizona. Fuck. And I know that Texas is a place. We're, so we are we're very battle-groundy. Very, we are personally connected to all of these. <laughs> um, we know that's a big goal, but the sooner we get new voters registered, the sooner organizers can start building relationships and expanding their work to reach every last voter. Don't we want more Georgias? So many. Let's everything let's should be a Georgia. Let's Georgia all these places to chip in. Head to votesaveamerica.com/slash/donate to learn more. Also, so we have Rebecca here today. Yes. Um, there's only one episode of Crooked's podcast, This Land, left. And it drops on Monday, and I cannot wait. It's so good. It, it is, is so good. I started listening to the first episode and then was like, fuck, what am I going to do? I don't want to do my Zoom because I want to keep listening to all the other episodes. There is both narrative, true crime. It's everything. It's everything. And I learned so much uh, listening yeah. to it. Yeah, it's, it's so good. It is a year-long investigation that Rebecca did into a series of custody battles over Native American children. And they all lead back to powerful conservative forces quietly trying to dismantle American Indian tribal rights. The case explored in this season is on its way to the Supreme Court this term, but you can uncover all the details right now. You can binge the first seven episodes of This Land now before next week's finale. Listen and follow This Land wherever you get your podcasts. You won't be sorry. Okay, the house has been kept. Now let's move on to Sanity Corner. Alyssa, this is a very special week for you. Very special week. Erin, September 29th kicks off Fat Bear Week, <gasps> where we have a week. Get your brackets ready. Get your brackets ready to figure out which bear is going to be Fat Bear of 2021. And I have to be honest. Holly is my fave. Holly, Holly won in 2019, and I'm hoping she makes a comeback. But Aaron, watching these furry little guys just shoving all the food in their mouth, getting ready for winter, is about the most joyful. I mean, like, I wish that my I so I put the video on. This was last year. And my cat <laughs> fat norm was like, what the fuck's going on? What are all these fish? Can I get the fish too? Anyway, we love it in our house. We follow it. I'm, I might do a bracket this year. Normally, I just follow along because I don't want to be competitive. But uh, they're even doing Fat Bear Jr. Oh, yeah, for like the yearlings yeah. and the cubs. I can't. It's the best, most wholesome fun you can find. And, and it's at Katmai National Park and Preserve. Do you yes. know where that is? Is that in Alaska? I think it's Alaska. Okay. And there's a whole bracket there's a whole bracket that you can download. Yeah. There's a whole bracket where Holly is against Grazer, 
on Wednesday. We'll know tomorrow whether Holly gets knocked out in the first round or not. Um, but on the website, which you can you can check out Fat Bear Week at nps.gov, but they also have a Fat Bear Week website. Yes, they where do. Where you can learn about each of the bears. There's one named Chunk. Chunk. And and they do they do like a before and after like summer. <laughs> Um, they do chunk yeah. and then they describe like these bears behavior because they're all very closely watched, you know, throughout their lives. And, uh, they talk about, you know, whether or not they've had cubs, like Holly has taken in all these orphaned cubs, which Fucking is very sweet. Holly. Yes. Explore.org is the place to be to enjoy yourself some fat bear week. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say, <laughs> having looked at pictures of bears, it's, all morning, and I realize that's a strange sentence because it can mean one of a couple things. Uh, but actual, actual literal bears. I think my pick for Fat Bear Week 2021 is Otis. Okay, that's fair. Otis is on the the other side of the bracket from Holly, so it is possible we could have an Otis Holly final. Um, I just like Otis. Otis is a great name for a fat bear. It's true. It's got the big round fat O at the beginning. It's like a promising fat bear name. So that's. I just root for Holly because she's got booty like mine. <laughs> I just want to know who comes up with these things. Like who, who decides? Like it's amazing. I just want to know who has this. Mother nature. Imagination. Whoever came up with it is a fucking genius because. All they do is put cameras in the wild and follow some fat <laughs> bears amazing. around. And we are like, give me more. You know, I was also thinking the other day, I was thinking about polar bears because polar bears are one of the only animals that naturally p- prey on humans. Like right. if a grizzly if a grizzly bear eats a human, there's a problem in the ecosystem. If a polar bear They're eats hungry. a human, that's just normal. Lunch, yeah. That's, that's part, yeah, that's part of it. Um, and I was thinking, you know, if I were ever in a position where I was in the wild in polar bear country and I got eaten by a polar bear, I think as I was dying, I would think, okay, fair. <laughs> one for score, one for nature. <laughs> fair enough. I was I, I was in their land and this is fair. Um, okay, Julissa, what is your sanity oh corner this week? Okay, so last time I was on the show, my sanity corner were um, Mexican TikToks. And uh, they are undefeated. Oh, so good. And so therefore, my Sandy Cornier again has to do with TikToks, uh, in this case, more broadly, Latino TikToks um, for, quote, Hispanic Heritage Month. So, okay, let me explain. We are right now in the period of Hispanic Heritage Month that goes from September 15th to October 15th. We don't even get, you know, the month of September, September 15th to October 15th. So there's a, there's, you know, there's sort of like two camps. There's sort of like the very cynical camp of like, this month sucks. It's just like pandering. Some people do the bare minimum. Other people don't do anything at all. And some people, you know, are just like over Hispanic Heritage Month. And there's the other camp that's like excited. That's like, uh, you know, this is a month where we can like get some attention, where we can, I'm sort of in that camp of like, we get attention, I get hired, I have so much work right now, I don't know what to do with myself, like, you know, so glad I'm getting hired everywhere. I wish I could get hired like this every month of the year. Um, But you know, I, I appreciate the blessings. Okay, now let's move on to this memes. So 
happy Hispanic Heritage Month, that phrase has now become like a meme. And uh, Daniel Hernandez from the LA Times wrote this really great column about sort of um, the meme generation really taking advantage of this month. And so he and he's been sharing these TikToks. And let me just share three of my favorite ones. One is a woman dressed as Selena, you know, the Tejano singer in that very famous purple outfit, uh, <laughs> beating up a piñata of uh, of the woman who 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 killed her uh, of Yolanda Saldivar, and it is the most amazing thing. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> Selena, just like banging on this piñata of um, Yolanda. It's it's amazing. That's one. The other one is um, everybody has probably seen, heard, uh, or has seen some sort of footage from Coco. You know the sweet little grandma. And so there's this meme of like the grandma watching Coco on TV and all of a sudden there's a song called Remember Me, right? And it's about like memories, whatever. And so she gets up and she's like, what memories? And then she, and then there's this, it's this TikTok of her, of this like guy with a grandma, Coco grandma um, mask on. And he's like beating up people, arm wrestling people, uh, making out with someone and getting on a motorcycle. Like it's, Amazing. I, I'm not describing it very well. You just have to go and watch them. And finally, the third Happy Hispanic Heritage Month uh, meme that just really had me on the floor, like laughing so hard, is one of just like, so this is like an immigrant uh, thing where we have this little mark from a, a vacuna, from like a, a shot, a vaccine. And every, it's like the it's like the immigrant mark. Like if you're an immigrant, you just like show your shoulder and there is like your little little mark that you get from a vaccine. And so that was being shared very widely. So all that to say that I'm really happy that it's Hispanic Heritage Month. I don't call it Hispanic Heritage Month. I call it Latino Latinx Heritage Month. Uh, But this phrase, Happy Hispanic Heritage Month, you should look it up. There's some really great memes. I am just so thankful that people have these imaginations and they create (laughs) these things. It's amazing. I will definitely be looking that up um, as soon as we are not recording anymore. Rebecca, what is your uh, sanity corner today? Um, that's a good question. I think I misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I actually I took like a week off the internet, and it was so great. <laughs> no, that <laughs> no, is no, a that's perfect sanity, sanity corner. That's for sure. <laughs> that is a hundred percent a sanity corner. What did you do with your time? And like by the internet, do we mean like all like apps too, or? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually like I I during COVID like took a long break from Twitter, which was like a year ago. And I still have a really hard time being active on social media as much as before the break. Because I'm still just like, oh, so but I am I went to like there's this state park um, in Arkansas that's about like an hour and a half from where I live. And I went and hung out for the weekend and it has all of these um, like really cool. It has really big caves, but then it also has these really cool like rock formations. And so um, it's just it looks like the earth just split in two and Mm -hmm. it's like three stories high. And so I spent the weekend hiking around on rocks and it was really great. That's oh like God. a very correct sanity yeah. corner. Yeah. <laughs> we love, but we my, love my internet thing. Um, and because I spend, I've, I've been like, I really have been trying to spend like less and less time on social media, which means sometimes I like find things like, 
a year or like later <laughs> after they're possible. And so I recently discovered um, Salt Bay. <laughs> like very recently. And um, that's like that's been like my my YouTube happy place now. Nice. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Climbing on rocks is a great way to like feel disconnected from the bullshit of the online and reconnected with the like reality of the earth that we live on, which is very, very apt. And then also taking time off the internet is something that I'm, I'm looking forward to that the most about yeah. having a, a baby in like a month. I'm planning on taking like at least a solid four weeks off. I'm taking four weeks off the news, I'm taking four weeks off, like social media except for posting like the baby's here and I'm alive like <laughs> other than that I just I cannot wait and hearing that you had a good experience with it makes me even more excited to not be online that's actually <laughs> why I'm having a baby so that I can not be online so I want to talk about uh my sanity corner this week this is something that I look forward to all year and I have tried to mentally explain it to myself why this is so exciting to me. I don't know why. Um, Freeform's 31 Nights of Halloween starts on October 1st, and they play movies that fall within the perfect little Venn diagram intersection of spooky, but like not too spooky. Like it's it's PG-13 spooky. It's Adam's Family Values. It's Beetlejuice. It's uh, Hocus Pocus. It is like Casper and Ghostbusters. It is like family popcorn movie spooky. And I know that all these movies are available on streaming. If I wanted to watch them, I could watch them anytime. But there is an appeal to me to watching something and knowing that other people elsewhere are also watching it at the same time. Like it feels like attending an event, sitting through Ghostbusters with commercial breaks. <laughs> it feels like I'm attending an event. And I just, I love it. I look forward to it all year. I'm especially looking forward to it this year um, because doing stuff that isn't lying down is starting to get uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to like lying down and looking at those movies when I'm lying down. I can't wait for the spooky movies. I can't wait for the day after spooky movies for the Christmas movies to start. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Oh, oh my you, God. You start November 1 with yeah, the Christmas dude, movies? Yeah, dude, why not? Listen, you want to talk an event? Reba McIntyre has a Lifetime Christmas movie. <laughs> I am not surprised. I know, you're, I know you are the person going to Costco buying the Christmas things in October. I'm not basic like that, Julissa. I'm not basic like that. I use November to get myself geared up to go get my Christmas shit the day after Thanksgiving. Okay. Oh, it's okay. a private celebration for those three weeks. I love that. Um, a couple of years ago, I had, uh, I got like some physical therapy for my wrist and I went like the same hour block every week. And um, the office played just like had lifetime or no it was hallmark channel christmas movies on and so i watched every hallmark channel christmas movie but i've watched like the same hour where like you know they realize that they love each other but the conflict has gotten to where like they can't be together because like he's a real estate agent and he's selling her ballet studio that's her life dream and now she can't afford the rent anymore but they already had hot cocoa and really liked each other and so it's like I've seen like every Hallmark Christmas movie but like at the point where it's like they both are like small vineyard wine people but she didn't bring enough wine to the 
championship wine competition in France and are they like are they gonna get together and so that's that's my experience of Hallmark Christmas movies is like getting getting to the um easy to see around the corner of conflict (laughs) (laughs) I love that I I just like you know on this show we are pro all the holidays if there were a season of movies for like all of the Jewish high holidays in September I would watch those too. Totally. Like I I am I am not of that faith tradition, but I love a holiday movie and I would watch a holiday movie for just about any holiday. I am very excited about the uh Cristela Alonso uh Christmas movie that she wrote for Lifetime. I cannot wait. If that was out today, I would watch it today. See, Jalisa? It's just all about oh, no. what floats. You misunderstand your boat. me. I am I am the person who's buying Christmas things like early on because they're on sale. Well, if also, if you're not careful, they sell out. So it's going to be a supply chain issue. Exactly. You heard it here first on Hysteria. <laughs> get your Christmas shit, get your holiday shit early because everyone's saying there's going to be yep. supply chain issues. Oh, man. Every single day I'm like, can I go down to the garage now and get the Halloween stuff out? And I'm like, no, you have to wait until October 1st. A couple more days. <laughs> um. Well, Ladies, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Thank you so much, both of you, Julissa and Rebecca, for stopping by. That was such a good conversation. Alyssa, thank you, as always, for being my ride or die. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. I know we talked about some heavy stuff this week. Um, If you or somebody you know is facing a difficult situation, a domestic violence situation, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org, or you can call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Stay safe out there, and there will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. <laughs> 